And that's my long soliloquy on productivity, that we are in a such a major shift in the way that we do things that it's almost impossible to see how much has changed in just a very short period of time. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to an exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach on this, uh, the September 2nd, 2023 episode. Unless you're on the podcast or on the website, then we're live. And it, 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 otherwise, it's some dead form of us. From the past. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're live now. So, so meanwhile, we, back at the economy. Yes, you wanted to talk about productivity a bit this hour, and I wanted to throw out. Oh, you had some things. Yeah, yeah. I want to throw something in here. You said you you said you hadn't got a firm handle on it yet. So the the Labor Department, um, it, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the part of the Labor Department that we are most uh, comfortable with because they are self-proclaimed bureaucrats. It's in the name of the agency they work for. The Bureau of Labor Statistics put out total factor productivity for detailed industries report for, and this came out in August, August 30th of 2023 for the year 2021. So we're a little behind on the detailed reports. Those are always the case. This is something people talk to us about. Why don't we know more about what's happening with productivity and so on? All of the reports that come out have a lag. The detailed reports have significant lag, like two and a half year lag. Um, So when we're looking at 2021, and I go out to report, this is what we know about. So listen to this. Total factor productivity, that's output per unit of combined inputs. Oh, okay, think about that for a second. It means how fast we're making stuff out of the same stuff we used to make stuff. It rose in 78 of the 86 manufacturing industries that they're reporting. Those industries, by the way, are unique and they have to have at least 350,000 employees in them. So when they look at 86 of these industries that are manufacturing industries, each one has to have at least 350,000 employees in that industry. So that's like clay products, refractories, cutlery, sugar and confectionery products, stuff like that. So candy companies are manufacturers. Um, so are petroleum and coal products. Uh, so when we look at that, in 2021, we have massive increases in productivity. Coating, engraving, and heat treating metals is up 19.9% productivity. That means they're making, for every five things they're making, they're making an extra one from the year before. They're making six instead of five. That's significant, very significant. And there's numbers like this across 78 of 86 of those industries. There are some that didn't do as well. Iron and steel mills dropped significantly in their productivity. Alumina and aluminum production also dropped, not as significantly as did glass and glass products. Those are the things that dropped. Why? It was 2021 and we import most of our raw aluminum we import most of our 
iron that we use to make the steel with. We import the silicates for the glass, unless it's recycling and all of those areas went way up in productivity. So when we're talking about productivity increases, this is way delayed, but it's the kind of productivity increases that when you're in econ school and you're studying this stuff and you look back through a thousand years of production, there's like maybe five or six periods during that thousand years where productivity increased that fast. They're usually associated with massive changes in technology. So why is that important? Because there's only five times in the last thousand years where this has happened and we just saw it. <laughs> it's huge. And probably in two generations, they'll be studying what we're going through right now and talking about the great importance on our way of life. And we're just stumbling through it because it's just our normal reality at this moment. We are living in momentous times. The pandemic is part of that. Our response to the pandemic is part of that. The technological innovations that are taking place in transportation, in communication, in everything that we do, food production, um, warfare, everything is changing right now. And I know you kind of feel like things are changing quicker than usual. They are. In the Industrial Revolution, when we hit the first part of it, the way of life changed drastically in the first 20 years or so of that, 20 to 25 years. And then it evened out, and we had mild shifts, generally improvements in our way of life for the next 40 or 50 years. And then we had an, an information revolution, and, and that changed our way of life over about 20 years. It wasn't quite as drastic. We didn't go from working in a dirt field to sitting in a factory. That's a big shift. We went from sitting in an office to doing more work sitting in an office for the most part. Some of our other stuff improved as well, but the information revolution really improved how we do office work. We're now into the next layer that comes from the industrial revolution and the information revolution, which is the industrial information revolution. It's where we're combining that stuff and we're seeing automation and we're magnifying the effects of a human at levels that have never been seen before. When I say once, or, you know, five times in the last thousand years that we've seen this kind of a shift, we saw it from going from using a hand tool to using a power tool, from, from using mules to using a tractor. And that was a big shift. We're seeing that same level of shift at the manufacturing level when making cars. And, you know, we kind of have kind of filtered it out of our senses because people have talked about it as a big headline, but that was like a headline from five years ago. You know, Tesla's got all those robots in there. Yeah, they still have all those robots in there. So no big deal, right? Well, yeah, except it's not headlines right now because all of the other major car manufacturing facilities on the planet are moving more and more in that direction. By more and more, I mean all the new lines, all of the new equipment, all of the new vehicles have a new model of production. We haven't seen this kind of a shift in production since like the early 1980s when we first started using robots in manufacturing 
and it wasn't universal across all manufacturing. It was in some very sophisticated car plants only. Now we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing machines to, to sift your recycled waste. We've talked about this in the past. Recycling is uh, broken right now. If you're recycling plastic, when you put that plastic into your single line recycling, it's going into the landfill. Well, why? Well, because in 2019, the Chinese stopped buying our plastic waste and they were the only buyers on the planet for it because they were converting it into recycled plastic, but it was very dirty. Well, what happened in 2019? Honeywell allowed more factories in China. Honeywell, an American company, owns the patent for making plastic out of coal. China has coal. They don't have much in the way of natural resources besides coal, but they can make plastic out of coal now, and it's cleaner than using plastic that's already been made. That's the dirty secret about recycling plastic, is it is actually dirtier for the air when you recycle it than to actually make it from the original petroleum. That's for most types of plastic. There's like the milk jug stuff. It's not bad. But the rest of the stuff, it's pretty nasty. And the Chinese were looking around and saying, hey, we got to do something. So they stopped buying our waste. We didn't have anybody else to buy it. So it started filling up our ports. Literally, bales of plastic were filling up the port of Los Angeles, making it harder for us to ship anything out because we didn't know where else to put it. Well, eventually, they just took it all to the dump, and they've been doing it ever since. Well, come forward to today. Why is it that they're doing that? Because sorting the different plastics requires somebody looking at it and knowing the difference between that kind of plastic and that kind of plastic over there, and this kind of plastic over there, and then somehow cleaning it before melting it back down. Well, the machines are doing it now. The first mass-manufactured plastic sorting machines are coming onto the market right now. And that means that the people in waste management that have been getting $50 an hour sorting plastic are likely to leave their job pretty soon. Well, here's something else to know about that. That's the, kind, the reason why they're paying $50 an hour for that job is because people don't stay in that job very long. For some reason, they don't like putting their hands in trash all day long. $50 an hour is worth it for most people thinking about it, but you're not doing it for a reason. Most of you that are saying, hey, that seems, sounds like a reasonable... You're not doing it, though, <laughs> or you wouldn't be saying that. that they, it's hard to get people to do that job. So the machines are coming in there. And this is one industry. I talked about this last week about the companies, small businesses that do lawn cutting at cities all over the country. Um, these are kind of the definition of small businesses. Usually there's no company that's doing lawn cutting that has more than 50 employees. And the lawn equipment that they're buying is not the lawn equipment that they bought in 2019 or 2020 or 2021, they're going all electric. The price of using battery-operated lawn equipment has so, so fallen below the price of using internal combustion that there's absolutely no comparison anymore. It's just not a, not a competition. The people that are still buying internal combustion lawnmowers are people that grew up on it and they want to pull on that crank thing and that's gives them joy somehow. That's perfectly up to them. But as far as pure price, we're moving on and that's increased our productivity Gr drastically. It is a lot easier to charge a battery wherever you are 
than to take a trip, however long that might be in the middle of a city, to go refill gas. And that's my long soliloquy on productivity, that we are in a such a major shift in the way that we do things that it's almost impossible to see how much has changed in just a very short period of time. We, uh, we got another question um, about downgrades and potential downgrades of banks across the country. From uh, the rating agencies? Yeah. Um, frankly, this is not something to be too concerned about. Uh, it, the reference was back to Breitbart. And if you read the article in Breitbart, which I don't recommend, you will discover it is a sponsored article by someone who's trying to sell gold, which means they're going to say bad things about banks and they talk about bank collapses being imminent. Not true. What's happening in the United States is interest rates are going up. If you hold a portfolio of bonds, which a lot of banks do and a lot of insurance companies do and a lot of other folks do, we have just seen something happen to that portfolio that actually has not happened in the history of the United States before. If you bought a 10-year treasury bond from the United States government or on the open market three years ago, you have seen three consecutive years when it declined in value. This has never happened before uh, because we're seeing in absolute terms the the uh, the fastest run-up in interest rates that we have seen in the history of the United States. Um, and as a result, bonds that, other than very short-term bonds, uh, and even with short-term bonds, we've seen a lot of this, have declined in value for the last three years. Now, that's it's a problem if you're going to sell the bond on the open market. On the other hand, if you're holding a bond and you're going to sell it at maturity, you're just going to allow it to mature. You're going to get, and a bond typically is $1,000, by the way, uh, although some U.S. Treasury bonds are uh, notes and so on are at 10000 But if you have a $1,000 bond and you hold it to maturity, you get your $1,000 back and they paid you interest along the way and you didn't lose anything. Now, inflation obviously is eaten into it to some degree, but that's what the interest is about. And banks hold, generally speaking, a significant portfolio of treasury notes and bonds that generate steady interest. It's forecast on their sheets and the interest continues to come in. The problem and the reason that the Moody's is considering downgrading a lot of banks a little bit, uh, for instance, one of the banks that was questioned in the in the message we got was about the Bank of New York. The Bank of New York is under consideration for a possible downgrade from A1 to A2, which is from the highest, most reliable credit rating to the second highest, most reliable credit rating. And that's which not is, been finished frankly, yet. It's being it's investigated in, for it. Yes. And what and, does and that, that mean? It's not like a, an investigation by some, it's just they're looking over the books. And there's, it's nothing to be concerned about, very frankly. Uh, there's a lot of other things you could be concerned about, but not that. And be careful about what you read and, and look at the source. And if it's sponsored by somebody who is- In uh, direct competition. <laughs> in direct competition and who makes blatant statements like, in there is a headline, 186 banks likely to collapse or something like that, which is absurd. Yeah. I, I, um, uh, I, I take publications on um, the different forms of cryptocurrency and digital assets and so on because I need to stay up to date on what's happening with them. Uh, and the same ads that you get uh, from the gold companies are mildly changed by the uh cryptocurrency companies banks are bad banks are bad banks are bad buy our thing instead we are safe you have to say it with the right tone of voice because 
they're pointing out some weaknesses in the banking industry. And we've had two bank failures in the last 12 months or so. That's a big deal. Actually so three. But we're three, right. three bank failures. And, you know, when we look at the number of thousands of banks out there, that doesn't look so bad. But they're three and they were big and we're supposed to trust them. How many crypto failures have we had in the last? How many gold companies have failed in the last? And you don't see those statistics because you don't expect a crypto company to be safe. And you don't truly expect someone that's vaulting the gold to be safe. As weird as that is, there's an expectation of higher risk in this market. One of the things that's happened since those failures, by the way, is the Federal Reserve set up a program so that if there, if a bank needs to take its long-term portfolio of treasury bonds that it's going to hold to maturity and is forced into a position by a, by a run on the bank to begin to sell those after the after everybody is inspected and they said that's all very reasonable what you're doing the federal reserve will return them will actually return the money to the bank at par in other words for every thousand dollars worth of bond uh the federal reserve will give a thousand dollars to the bank now they charge them an interest rate it's in effect a loan uh, a low interest rate on that but the Things that happened to Silicon Valley Bank and, and a couple of other banks, the Federal Reserve has set up a program that would head that off, uh, and it isn't going to happen again. Now, something new may happen that we're not thinking about, but again, be careful that people who are trying to sell you something don't panic you into running into a far greater danger. Um, it reminds me of an old saying that I've heard since childhood about the man who was walking on a path and he saw a snake and he picked up a stick to be to kill the snake. And it turned out that the thing he looked at and thought was a snake was in fact a stick. But the stick that he picked up to kill the snake was in fact a snake and he was bit. And that is just a little bit of wisdom. If you're trying to flee something, if you're concerned about the security of something and you're trying to flee it, rather than trying to go to something that's better, you have a high probability that you're making an error. It's That is a general piece of wisdom. We have an amazingly healthy economy in the United States. I mentioned last hour, I think I mentioned it last hour, both China and Germany have their economies in trouble. Uh, Germany is experiencing stagflation right now. While they're in a recession and their economy is contracting they're also having, I think, 5.6% year-over-year inflation. Uh, that's a bad deal. China, the other big exporter in the world, is running into some, we're, we're getting anecdotal reports that they're running into more and more and more economic problems. They're probably in deflation right now. Um, and, and we, in the past in the United States, have heard political rhetoric that we export more than we import, and that's bad. We should be exporting more. We, I mean, we import more than we export. I'm sorry. We should be exporting more and selling things to the rest of the world, and that is a more healthy position. Actually, it's not. In the United States, the gross domestic product, about two-thirds of it, is us buying stuff from somebody else in the country. That is a very, very healthy place to be. Why is it a healthy place? To be? Because China, for example, is their economy is largely dependent upon Western Europe and the United States buying things from them. If Western Europe and the United States stops buying things from them, their economy is in deep trouble. And that is what's happening right now. Germany has an economy that's gigantic growth since the unification. There was a strategic uh, effort at the high level in the German government to get focused on exports because of the traditionally high quality that German exports have. And they do. But they, they looked have, around. They, they make do. high quality items. But they looked at the United States and says, no, the United States is making high quality items. We really can't compete very well there. And they looked around 
and realized that Russia and China could benefit greatly from buying high-quality technological, tech, high-tech stuff from Germany. And so they started selling to them, and their economy became dependent upon their customers. And since things have kind of gone upside down with both China and Russia, mainly with Russia, they're in a world of hurt because without anything happening in their internal economy, they suddenly find themselves in a hurt and people being laid off and uh, having both inflation and a contracting economy at the same time because they were dependent upon other countries for their well-being. We in the United States have an amazing sweet spot that we're in where we're primarily dependent upon ourselves for our own prosperity. And that is so good and it is so wonderful. Uh, that is part of what we've been talking about and the fact that our GDP has grown so amazingly over the past several years. Our productivity is growing. A big piece of that is that our primary customer is here in the United States. And so as we build up wealth on one side, it appears on the other. Uh, and, and we, I think, are very low in appreciation for just how good we have it. Yeah. Now, now that we've talked about how wonderful things are, I'm going to bring up one of the dark sides of the economy. Um, okay. The uh, and we've talked about this. The ISM Manufacturing Index uh, mm -hmm. has now uh, gone ten months in a row making less than it did before. Now that's slowing down. It's making it, it's shrinking less fast than it did before. But now this is 10 months in a row where manufacturing is not in expansion mode. We just talked about great productivity, which means that on the product productivity side of things, it's taking less people to do the same amount of work or the same amount of people to do more work, but the actual activity is going down. We're getting better at doing it, but we're producing less things. Each person is producing more, but manufacturing's down. So what's going on there? And this is one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. As long as we're going through a period of expanding manufacturing where there's not enough capability to build the things that people want, prices go up. Now, if manufacturing for 10 months in a row has been going down. They've been making less. They're still profitable, by the way. These The vast majority of these manufacturing companies are well in profitability still, but they're making less things than they did before. So their profits are down. So hold that in mind for a second. What do you do when your demand is going down for the products that you have? When the demand goes up, your prices go up. What happens when the demand goes down? And this is what we're beginning to see in auto manufacturing, in computer manufacturing, in most manufacturing, is that prices are not just flattening out, they're now declining. A new automobile this year, if you're talking about the leading automobiles purchased this year versus last year, the same model, model for model, are less expensive this year than last year. Why is that? Well, a lot of companies are building electric vehicles. The subsidies just changed on those, and there's a price war between the companies to lower the prices for their... That's causing the internal combustion cars to look around and say, hey, we're not getting this massive influx of demands for new cars. So think about this from a pandemic perspective. Manufacturing is down for 10 months. Why? 
Well, because it was down prior to that significantly because everything got shut off and people wanted to buy cars and there weren't enough cars to buy. And so they went into overproduction to catch up on the demand. They built as many cars as they possibly could. And our demand was sated. We were at least sort of satisfied with what was produced. So the demand is less and interest rates are up. So the monthly price that we pay to buy a new car is up. Even if the actual sticker price is down, the monthly price to us is up, which is going to cause them to want to lower prices. Again, this is the market. This is how it works. So when we see manufacturing down for 10 months in a row, that's not a great sign, by the way. It's a, it's a, it's a sign that doesn't look good. And a lot of people are pointing at it and saying, this is recessionary. And I would normally be fully on board with that. You're right, 10 months in a row of receding demand for products at manufacturing. That's not a good thing. Except that when the preceding full year was at a level of demand that we're measuring against, that's not normal. Right, that's the key. We're back to a normal production level in manufacturing. It looks like we're shrinking in manufacturing because we had a big burst of catch up. We got to make a bunch of extra stuff because we didn't for a while. So it's totally reasonable to have 10 or even 12 months of reseeding demand for the things that we worked so hard to build because people wanted and couldn't have them. So there, that's where we are when I look at this. And it's, again, from my perspective, from your perspective, we are in agreement on this, not a recessionary signal, though normally that would be something that we would point out and say, that's a recession on the way. What we're looking, just like at the beginning of, the, of, the, of our episodes every week, we talk about a whole bunch of perspective positions on where the market is. When we have manufacturing productivity skyrocket like what we did, it was because we were trying to make as many possible things as we possibly could with fewer people. I just talked about that 2021 report. Well, this is what 2022 and 2023 is being measured against. We got to make more with less. We got to do it as fast as we possibly can. At, at, we run the, the machines at, the, at full capacity for as long as possible. Well, that breaks machines after a while. We've been doing maintenance we needed a rest at the manufacturing level or all of our, all of our factories would be broken. Um, so where we are now, when we look at where we started, we're way ahead of where we were at the beginning of the pandemic in manufacturing. Yeah. But it, it looks it, like we're down because we're less than we were at the right. very peak of production. You really, to, to understand, and this is difficult because it, is, it isn't widely, it isn't easily offered to us, ready to digest. You really have to go back and when you look at any statistic in the economy today, you really have to go back to 2019 and measure it against 2019. You have to take that anomaly called the pandemic out of it because two things happened during that anomaly. One, we had a tremendous decrease in demand, followed by a tremendous increase in demand and a labor shortage. We're just now getting back into equilibrium. So if we look at 2019, we look at now, what would be if, if we just project out from 2019? 18, 17, and so on forward, where should we have been if we just kept growing? We just had to. And the answer to that is below where we are now. We're above that line. We're doing better than that. Yeah. And and it's it's interesting, uh, the ISM, ISM PMI, (laughs) (laughs) Institute for Supply Management, Purchasing Manager Index. If If you take a look at the anecdotal 
comments they're getting from their respondents. Uh, let, let me read one to you from Primary Middles. Order book continues to be strong. Working overtime to complete orders, labor availability is still the number one constraint impacting production. Cannot find qualified salaried or skilled trades people to hire hourly temporary employees of poor quality and walk off after taking the job. That's, by the way, why we're seeing the increase in productivity because manufacturers in many cases are slowing down their production. Yes, that's a lower PMI so that they can institute something other than being dependent upon temporary hourly workers who walk off after taking the job. And we're seeing uh, that there's less use of temporary workers going on right mm-hmm. now. They're, they're going back to finding permanent employees. These are all things that should be expected. But when you look at the data by itself, out of context with what's just happened in the world, you get a lot of economists that are used to, I mean, if you go to a doctor and you say, my blood pressure has risen drastically over the last year, it's risen 40%. Well, the doctor is probably going to get concerned. If you then tell him that you were anemic and you had to have a whole bunch of blood transfusions to bring your blood supply back up to normal and you're at a normal blood pressure level, the doctor seems to calm down a little bit. <laughs> you're not anemic anymore. You have enough blood in your system. Your blood pressure is normal. But it was a 40% increase. So when we look at 10 months in a row of manufacturing contraction, we got to take it in context with, yeah, we're, where we were was not sustainable. That We would have just broken everything if we hadn't receded from that level. And our manufacturing capacity, the stuff, we've got new manufacturing facilities coming in at the same time so that we're hopefully planning ahead to not be in the place where we were. We're less dependent on manufacturing from places that are not dependable. We're less dependent on China, and that's going to continue. We're going to continue to not put new manufacturing jobs in China because they're not dependable, and they're getting quite dangerous, as a matter of fact. So when we're making them in Canada and in Mexico and in uh other areas of Asia and other areas of South America than we would have before, those are all good things, but they're also temporary. To manufacture in a place that you're not actually selling because of cheap labor is a temporary thing. That in, that informational industrial revolution that I was talking about, and somebody's going to come up with a better name for it, the robot revolution, something, is changing the way we manufacture and a lot of chip manufacturing facilities are coming to the united states because they don't need people in them the way they used to in fact people can't do the things that the chip manufacturers need to have done we simply cannot we're talking about a scale that's too small we got to use machines we're seeing something going on in the economy that has happened at least twice before that i've seen I I didn't personally see it, but I studied it. Um, In the 1920s, as as we rolled out of the 1910s, the teens, automobiles, for example, were being made one at a time. Yeah. In other words, somebody would, they would make the parts and then they would put the whole automobile together in a garage someplace and they would sell the automobile. All right. I need to make, very ineffective. I need to make a muffler. Can you get on, start pumping the bellows? We'll start the muffler next. In the 1920s, 
the Roaring Twenties, we saw something very interesting happen. We saw the assembly line production for automobiles and tractors and a lot of other things that previously were handmade. They were made one at a time. Uh, And it dramatically increased productivity, which increased our general well-being and people get paid more. Lowered the price of the automobiles significantly. It caused some massive shifts in populations from the south to the northern industrial, what we now call the Rust Rust Belt. This also happened in the 1830s. Um, In the 1830s, uh, the McCormick Reaper, for example, was invented. And the McCormick Reaper meant that you could harvest uh, crops with a lot fewer people. You you hooked up horses. Prior to that, crops had been harvested by hand, individuals picking the crops. The McCormick Reaper came along and they began to use mechanical means pulled by horses to harvest crops. And it dramatically changed everything. It led to some very unsettling events in the decades that followed. It is but that's probably the, way it works. the single largest contributor to outlawing slavery over the planet. Right. Or over the majority and of the planet. There's still some places. <laughs> it, we are going through a digital revolution right now. That's what I think what it will be eventually called instead of an industrial revolution, uh, where a lot of things that people previously had been doing manually are going to be done via a combination of mechanical and computer assistance, which is what we call robots, by the way, on assembly lines. And during periods where this is happening, there is an economic boom every time. There is an increase in the general standard of living. There is a decrease, ultimately, in the cost of techni- of, of a lot of things, which we're about to see happen, I think. Um, it's generally preceded by a surge of inflation, which we just saw. Uh, the surge of inflation and the rush forward to raise prices triggers a labor shortage, which triggers necessity, which triggers automation, which triggers a drop in prices. It's a nice, very nice little one step at a time event that occurs on. We are, in effect, going into the Roaring Twenties. Just, yeah. just as a side note, I'm going to throw this in there. I mentioned slavery disappearing from the McCormick Reaper. The word robot comes from a Czech word, uh, which means ro- which is robotnik, which is the word for slave, <laughs> forced labor. And, and um, it was coined by none other than Isaac Asimov. Uh, actually, Carol Capic Asimov did Android. So uh, I thought he did Robot too. Uh, I Robot was the name of uh, of one of his books, but it was mm-hmm. from the old Czech word, and um, there was a Czech. Uh, writing by Carl Kapik called Rosum's Universal Robots. Um, so anyway, that's useless trivia, cool. but interesting no, to know useful. the word robot means slave. Mm. Or serf. Or serf. Forced labor yeah. of some kind. You don't have a choice. Get to work. And we don't pay them wages. We don't pay them overtime. We don't give them benefits. They work until we tell them to stop. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, um, the, the whole concept of what we're seeing into the future, and it seems like we're, we're really drumming on this. Generally speaking, these changes take place over decades. And when it comes to what we're used to, I know a lot of people are like, you know, my grandparents said things changed so fast. And when we look back at what they were as kids and where they are now, it's changed so much from only radio to black and white television to color television to now streaming on the internet. Uh, what what does that all mean? We're experiencing that same rate of shift in technology. Each of those shifts, the shift from black and white to color television, didn't take place over a 40-year period. 
<laughs> that was a less than 10-year period where the majority of televisions went from black and white to color. Now, when we look at that, and just like when you went from radio to black and white television, that took place in a very short period of time. We can measure it over a 80-year lifespan and say, look at all the changes that happened. But each of the changes are concentrated. And we're in a period of concentrated change in a whole series of areas where before, when we went to the radio, well, we had radio and television. Television wasn't used much. We had radio and telephone. Whoa, those both came at about the same time. That was a really, really concentrated shift. And it was by the same people. That we're, that we're working with that. It was communications and transmission. And then at the same time, we had industrial revolution going on where automobiles were getting cheaper and we were moving from trains. So that took place over a much, much longer period of time. The advent of the automobile took 40 years to really settle into the country. The advent of the computer took a lot less time than 40 years. A lot less. Uh, the advent of the tractor took a lot less than 40 years. And when we look at concentrated changes, automobile took place over a much extended period of time. We're seeing the shift to electric vehicles take place much quicker at about the same rate that airbags were accepted in automobiles. Uh, people said, hey, it's safer if you have a big balloon in your car and we, let's put it in there. It's a little more expensive. Let's put them in there and it saves people. And people go, hmm, I want that. Uh, same thing is happening with um, that happened with uh, rolling down your window with a crank or with the motor. Um, you hit a button and the, and the window goes down. Well, that took place over a very short period of time. What we're seeing right now is far more of those things happening right now. Uh, you're, you're likely, if you don't already, to have a robot that cleans your floors. You're likely in the next couple of years to have one. Uh, a large number of our population has a robot that cleans their floors. That was pure fiction not that long ago. Even when you bought the robot, you were like, ah, this is kind of like fiction and it's probably not going to work that well. Oh, it works pretty well. Oh, I like it. Uh, the same thing is happening across the board in a lot of areas. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. 
we don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.